verses 15 through 22 itself. So chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. And we want to ask ourselves, why this here? What's going on here? And what we know is from what we just looked at, we're in this fifth big section before Jesus starts his teaching, and this is all about the conflict that's going on between the Jewish leaders and between Jesus, and they are butting heads at every step. We saw Jesus went into Jerusalem and um, the Palm Sunday, but then he goes immediately into the temple and he turns over the temple and he kicks out the scribes and the Pharisees and he kicks out the chief priests and all of their sacrifices. And there is this conflict there. There's the conflict of the fig tree. And then the Pharisees came in and they questioned Jesus' authority. What gives you the authority to do this? And all of these conflicts have been at a head. And this is our last major section of conflict before Jesus is going to stop and condemn them as hypocrites in a long sermon. So what is happening here specifically in this last little part of this conflict is that the Pharisees have decided we're going to have to call some sort of revolution here. We're going to have to somehow get Jesus out of this popular idea that where people like him, and we're going to have to undercut him, create distrust. And the way they're going to do this is through a series of questions. They're going to set Jesus up with three questions and hoping that these three questions will prove that this man doesn't really know what he's talking about. He's not really qualified to be a religious leader. In each of these three questions or these three tests, Jesus is going to actually come out on top. And then he'll give them a test of his own. So that's why I've called this one part one of a four-question test. We're going to only look at the first one. Jesus is going to pass, right? And he's going to pass the next two, and then he'll turn it around on them, and they're going to fail. And that's going to what set us up here. What I just want us to look tonight is what exactly was this test? How did they test Jesus? Uh, the test is over this issue of taxation, and we're going to look at that um, but also want us to think through a little bit, not only about the specific nature of this test, is how are we going to respond to that? And there's a few things we're going to learn here about just how we relate to the government, because that's part of their questioning. But there's this bigger issue that's going on that I really want to come back to at the end. And that is the reason the Pharisees will fail the test ultimately is because though they're amazed with Jesus, they're going to walk away. They're going to see that Jesus knows the right things to say, and they're going to see that Jesus is, in fact, outsmarting them at every turn. But rather than submit to him and change their lives, they nod at him, they nod at him as a good teacher and simply walk away. And so our test here today, we want to understand the government. We want to understand some of that. But my big question I want us to leave with is how are you going to respond to this person of Jesus? When you hear his teaching, will you not only think clearly he, he's smart, but will you also bow your knee to this man? Let's read the passage together. Chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. They sent their disciples to him with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You defer to no one, for you don't show partiality. Tell us, therefore, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
But perceiving their malice, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, Therefore give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and just walked away. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we walk through this passage tonight, I pray that you will help us understand it. Help us to understand the context and the flow and the argument. But at the end of the day, we don't want to be simply people who understand. We want to be people who respond correctly. And for that, we need you to soften our hearts, to show us our sin, to bring repentance to us, Give us the capacity to see you and also to love you rightly. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, let's just walk through the passage together. Make sure that we do understand what's going on here. The, it begins right away with the Pharisees going and they're plotting about how they're going to trap Jesus. So there's this intentional trap that's going on, and we find out what the trap is in verse 14. The trap that they're setting Jesus in is they're trying to get a crowd together who will ask Jesus a question, and no matter what he answers, is going to be the wrong answer. Right? So the trap that they're setting up is we want to undercut his popularity with the crowds by putting him in a no-win situation. We want him to be presented with a question that there's no right answer to, and so certainly he'll say something that will offend somebody, and we can use that to undercut him here. And so the way they do this is they send one group in this crowd as their disciples. These are Pharisees, followers of the Pharisees. The other group is a group called the Herodians. And to understand what's going on here is probably helpful for us to do a little bit of talking about what's, why are these two groups the groups, this no-win situation. Why choose these two groups? And the answer is, but basically, these two groups were politically opposed to each other, right? I mean, these are Democrats and Republicans, right? There's, you can't, no matter what you talk about, they're going to disagree. They're at odds with each other. And the central thing that they're disagreeing about is how are we going to interact with this Rome, So remember that Jerusalem and all of Judea and Israel, they have been... Um, taken over by Rome. Rome, this Roman Empire, uh, basically is in control of uh, the whole known world at the time, including Israel. And Israel sees themselves as, and not just sees themselves, they are no longer their own sovereign nation. They're not free in this sense. But the question is, should they oppose them or work with them? The Pharisees were a group that were anti-Rome. What they believed is that God called them to be the chosen people, a sovereign nation, and that they should not be under the rule of Rome. And the way they wanted to get out of that was a twofold response. Basically, they felt like what we need to do is keep the law and be holy, not just by keeping the law, but by being separate from Rome. There's nothing that Rome's doing that should reflect on us. We should be a separate nation. And that if we keep the law and we are holy and separate and not like the people that have surrounded us, then God will bless us, Israel, and set us free from Roman oppression. 
The Herodians were pro-Rome. The the Herodians recognized that though they were a conquered nation, that no other country than Rome had shown so much grace and and, uh, freedom and leniency to this nation. In fact, Israel, by and large, was able to live as they were living. Rome was, for the most part, hands-off. I think Cannon talked about this a little bit in our church history class. If you took that, Rome was known for being an incredibly gracious, conquering nation. They allowed you, for the most part, to keep your religion, to keep your customs, to keep your clothing, to keep your local governments. This was okay. What they required is that you still claim loyalty to Rome and you paid your tribute to Rome. And if basically, if you weren't a thorn in their side, they were going to not be a thorn in yours. So the Herodians said, look, we get a lot of benefits. When we're conquered by Rome, we're still basically living pretty nice lives. We have protection from a Roman uh, military, right? We have Roman roads. I think you probably talked about Pax Romana, Roman peace. Like there's nobody's, nobody's beating us up right now. We, li- we live a pretty nice life. So let's not wake the sleeping giant, basically. Let's not rock the boat here. Let's, let's be at peace. So two groups, I don't like Rome and I do like Rome, and they are at odds with each other about how to interact with Rome. And so the Pharisees think we're going to use this against Jesus. And so they gather half an audience from that anti-Rome and half from the pro-Rome. They bring them together, and then they ask Jesus a question. But before they do that, they do something else that's really interesting. They butter Jesus up. Look at what they say uh, I'm in verse 14 here. Teacher, I'm sorry, verse 16. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You defer to no one, for you don't show partiality. Sounds like a compliment. But what I think is going on is rather than being a compliment, it's an attempt for Jesus to, to put his guard down. Jesus, you always speak boldly and truthfully, and that's why we really respect you. And they're hoping that Jesus is going to say something really bold and really foolish and will make people mad. Right? So they're trying to get his guard down. I think what is going on is these words of flattery are um, what Proverbs would call the kisses of an enemy. Are you familiar with Proverbs 26.7? It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. These are the profuse kisses of an enemy. They're complimenting him in order to destroy him. And so they said, Jesus, just say whatever's on your mind. I'm sure it'll be a good thing. And they then ask him this question. Now we're in verse uh, 17. Tell us what you think, Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They set the trap. Now here's the bait. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Let me explain why this is bait. Let me explain why this can really mess Jesus up. Because on one hand, if he says, no, don't pay taxes, then obviously he's siding with the Herodians, but he's siding against Rome. Right? All of a sudden, Jesus becomes an insurrectionist. Jesus becomes the thorn in Rome's side. And this is setting Jesus up to have the Roman government step in and take Jesus down. And so if they say to Jesus, if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes, even though he, they, some of the Pharisees might agree with him, 
it compromises Jesus' ability to continue in ministry. On the other hand, if they do pay taxes, there's another big issue with that. And the reason is because what was going on with the coins in Rome. In Rome, the denarius had a picture of Caesar on the coin, just like we have pictures of our presidents on our coin. So did the Roman coins. But in the inscription around the coin, it said, Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Let me make sure I'm reading that one right. Yep, August, it actually said Augustus Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, this coin was ascribing divinity, describing godhood to the Caesar of Rome. Right, And so for a monotheistic Jewish world where we only believe there's one God, this is a huge issue. We can't trade these coins that say Caesar's God without betraying our belief that there's only one God. So if Jesus says, yeah, hey, give him a denarius, you are tacitly approving and agreeing against the Shema that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. If Jesus gives, gives in here, is he given in on his monotheistic views? Has he become a heretic? How could Jesus be the Messiah sent from God and simultaneously deny that God is one, that there's no other God but him? And so they have him in a trap. Either he's going to be against Rome or he's going to be against Jewish belief and against God. And either way, he can't be the Messiah. They've trapped him here. So it seems. Let's look at Jesus' response here. We'll move to verse 18 through 22 in the next slide. What you see is they think, they think that Jesus is going to have to pick a side and be nice here. He's going to have to at least get somebody on his side. But it seems right away... Jesus says, I am not interested in playing your game. Because in verse 18, he perceives their malice, he perceives their bad intentions, and he says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? So if Jesus is trying to win a popularity contest, bad response. He calls them hypocrites and says, I'm not playing your game. And instead, he gives them an answer that both um, impresses them, but sets himself up as disagreeing with everybody. He's neither Herodian nor Pharisee. He has a whole different understanding of this system. And what he does first is very interesting. He asks them in verse 19, show me the coin used for the tax. And they bring him this denarius, and Jesus asks, whose face is on this coin? Whose inscription is this? And they say Caesar Augustus. Let me pause here. Several commentators point out that right... Right here, they didn't have to go any farther for Jesus to have won this debate, right? Because they're accusing Jesus, if he pulls out this coin, of being a traitor, right? Of being a not monotheistic. But all of a sudden, Jesus here doesn't have the coin, so clearly he's not the one that is not being monotheistic or dealing wrong with with the Roman government. It's actually his accusers. Right? They're accusing him of misunderstanding or misuse of this coin. And Jesus says, show me the coin, and they pull it out of their pockets. I think it's kind of like saying, uh, them accusing him of being a drunkard. And he says, smell your breath, guys. There's alcohol, and you're, you're the one with the coin, not me. So he's proving their hypocrisy by saying, you're the ones that are dealing in this coin that you think is so bad. 
But he takes the coin and he says, first off, tell me whose image. It's Caesar's. And then he responds to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Or I learned it, render unto Caesar what is Caesar. But render unto God what is God's. In other words, this coin has the face of Caesar. This coin belongs to Caesar. So give it back to him. It's his, give it back to him. And then he says, but what belongs to God, that's what you need to give back to God. The point here is that they have set their sights way too low. They're asking Jesus, how can we keep the law in this tithing, in, in this taxing situation? And he says, if you think this little coin is going to have you keeping the law, you've set your sights too low. You're thinking too small because God's not after your denarius. But what exactly is he after? What belongs to Caesar? What belongs to Caesar is the thing with Caesar's image on it. So then he says, but give back to God that, what is, that which is God's. Render unto God what is God's. What belongs to God? What has his image on it? That's right. Genesis 1.27, but God created them in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Because if you want to be right with God, if you want to keep the law Don't set your sights on this denarius. He wants all of you. You are his image. You are what he gets back. Jesus is upping the ante here. He's saying, I want way more than their little debate here. I'm asking for it all. Matthew Henry talked about how they would have heard this. In his opinion, he says, as the, as the group listened, he expected they should have recognized that Jesus is rebuking them. They should have recognized, and this is his quote, they all withheld from God his dues and are reproved for that, that while they were vainly contending about their civil liberties, they had lost the life and power of religion and needed to be put in mind of their duty to God with, with that to Caesar. In other words, your debate here is my civil liberties. What am I entitled to do with government? And, God, and Jesus is telling them, you have missed the big picture of lawful behavior. You have no liberties. All of you is owned by God. All of you must be given back to God. Matthew Henry gives three takeaways to this passage, and his specifically deal with the issue of government. I thought they were good. I want to go through his, but then I want us to come back to what I think is an even bigger point. But let me start through Matthew Henry's. He says there's three big things we can learn about our interaction with government. He said the first one is that the Christian religion is no enemy to civil government, but a friend to it. Christ's kingdom doth not clash or interfere with the kingdoms of the earth in anything that pertains to their jurisdiction. Right, this principle is more fully developed in Romans 13. That not only is Christianity against, not against government, that Christians believe that all government is established by God himself. That it is not our duty to revolt against government, but to submit to it as unto the God who gave it to us. Right, so Christians are not these 
unbridled libertarians who thinks no one can have authority over me. That we recognize God's given authority over us in government so that it can restrict our bad and help us pursue the good. His second point is that it is the duty of the subject. Matthew Henry wrote in the 1700s, which is why these sentences are a little wordy. He said, it is the duty of subjects to render to magistrates that which, according to the laws of their country, is their due. The higher powers being entrusted with public welfare, the protection of the subject, and the conservation of peace are entitled, in consideration thereof, to a just proportion of the public wealth and the revenue of the nation. For this cause we pay, he's quoting Romans 13, 6 here, for this cause we pay tribute because they attend continually to these very things. In other words, being a Christian does not free us from paying taxes, right? There's, what Matthew Henry is saying is there is inappropriate for us to ever say, I follow a different king, so I'm free from taxes here. I follow a different king, so I don't have to go by your speed limit. I don't have to go by your tax laws. My king's Jesus. Matthew Henry is saying, Jesus is telling you, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, recognizes that we are in submission to the governments that God has put over us even when we disagree with those governments, right? Remember, this is, he's talking about the same Roman government that would kill Jesus himself, and Jesus knew this. He's talking about the same Roman government that would later, his disciples, kill all but uh, John, and John was locked on uh, an island or exiled to an island where he died in exile. And Jesus says to submit to these governments as to God. His third point, Matthew Henry's third point, and I think this is important to remember, is that when we render to Caesars the things that are Caesars, we must remember withal to render to God the things that are God. Because if our purses be Caesars, our consciences are God's. In other words, while the government is our authority, God is our highest authority. So Matthew Henry says this, if Caesars' commands interfere with God's, we must obey God rather than men. Right? Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Render unto God that which is God's. God owns all, including the government. That is his jurisdiction. And so our submission to God is primary to all things. And the Bible gives us example after example after example. I can think of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who honored their government but uh, stood firm when the government asked them to do things that were inappropriate, such as worshiping other gods. So Matthew Henry thinks from this we can learn some things about our duty to government, but also that our government is not our highest authority. But again, I want to point out that I don't believe that that's the ultimate purpose of this passage. This is one of three interactions in which the Pharisees are trying to test Jesus. And in each time, Jesus comes out the victor in these. But look at what the Pharisees do. Uh, let's read verse 22 one more time. When the Pharisees and, and the Herodians, when they hear Jesus' response, when they hear this, they are amazed. So they left him and went away. That's the tragic response of a Pharisee. The tragic response of a Pharisee is you try to disprove that Jesus was God, found out, no, Jesus is wise. You were amazed, and you turn and walk away. 
Jesus is not looking um, to impress us with his wisdom. We saw in this video that Jesus' call is not for us to be impressed that he's smart. His call is for us to be his followers, not to turn and walk away. And so I want to try to press that into our lives a little bit before we close tonight and think, what would it look like for us to be people who don't turn and walk away? And I think one of the major ways that we need to wrestle with this in our lives is that for most of us here, we actually take in the words of Jesus and the word of Jesus, his word, the Bible, hopefully as we read the Bible throughout the week, but at least once a week, we're hearing the word of God preached. And I wonder, how often do we hear it? Nod, that was a great sermon, and just walk away. How often do the messages that we hear actually change something about the way we live our lives? Does it change the way I make decisions and the way I interact with people? I'll be honest, this morning, I thought this morning was an incredible message on anger. And the easy thing for me to think is, yeah, our world struggles with anger. They sure do need to work on that and to turn and walk away. Rather than pressing my heart to say, no, God's word calls me to do battle with anger, both in my life and in my children's lives, and I need to start thinking of actual, real, concrete examples of how I'm going to battle anger in my life. Right? If I hear this message this morning on anger, and I walk away thinking, I hope somebody gained from that, without looking into my soul to ask, where am I harboring anger? Anger. What things can I do to protect my soul from anger or to confess the anger that's there? If I'm not taking actual intentional steps to apply God's word to my heart, I believe I'm just like these Pharisees who think, good message, and turn and walk away. So let me turn it to you. When was the last time that you heard a sermon here at Rayford Road Church and you decided to take an active step in your life to change something about the way you're living or the way you're thinking? When was the last time you heard a message and thought more than just that's a good idea, but here's how I'm going to apply that word. Here is how I'm going to follow Jesus in his words. I think if we do less than that, then we are like the Pharisees who think Jesus has some good words, but just turn and walk away. So that's where I'd like to leave us tonight. We have two more challenges, and then Jesus will turn and challenge them. But tonight I want us to challenge ourselves and to ask, when confronted with the teaching of Jesus, will we follow him or turn and walk away? Let me pray. Music team, you can come up. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that as we reflected on the context and the structure of Matthew, that we will be stirred in our hearts to love the beauty and the message of your word, that we will be encouraged to study, to see the detailed and intricate, just intentional way that you've organized this so that it can shape our lives. 
But I pray also that we won't be people who solely study to know what it says or to see the beauty, but we will be people who follow you, who don't read your word or hear it preached and turn and walk away, but instead inspect our lives to see where we can make actual real changes that reflect um, trust and obedience to you. Teach us to love you and to follow you. In your name I pray, amen. If you'll stand up with us while they sing. At Rayford Road, the, we always end with an at, asking ourselves, how are we going to respond to this text? Um, this means that you need to investigate your heart now, but also it may be that God's leading you to come to the altar right now and confess to him. Ask him for the ability to open your eyes to your sins. Or maybe you need to come and talk to somebody. And if you'd like to come to the altar now and talk to us, I'll be up here and Pastor Johnny will be here and we would love to talk to you.